Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. It has been another crazy, busy week in seafood. We only have time for a few topics. We thought that we would start off in Norway. And what really intrigued us this week, or one story that um, that was uh, it was a brief one that came over from our colleagues in Norway was the wild versus farmed debate resuming. However, it's resumed in a different form and fashion than it has in the salmon world. This is about farm cod. Now, if you remember, farm cod about a decade ago was big news. There was companies that were putting a lot of money into them. There were publicly listed companies. The future looked, um, well, relatively bright. And then the Barents Sea cod quotas, the wild cod quotas, got increased dramatically. And suddenly, any kind of premium that you might have gotten for farmed cod, anything you would have gotten by having consistent supply, it just didn't seem as important. It just didn't, it didn't have the same uh, built-in um, margin potential as it had before. In addition... Cod had all kinds of issues. They were cannibals, uh, so they would eat one another. Um, there, there was disease issues. There were all kinds of things that you just didn't have to deal with in salmon farming. But uh, in recent uh, years and months, quietly, quietly, the cod farming sector in Norway has begun to, uh, to uh, grow again. There's been a, a stock-listed company, two stock-listed companies now in Norway in the past, uh, I guess it's a year and a half. One, uh, and the largest now, is Norcod. And Norcod has some big plans uh, to uh, produce uh, upwards of twenty-five to 30,000 metric tons. Uh, there's another company, it's close to, well, not close, but it's near, um, Gadus. And uh, that will be uh, being produced via its partner, um, Stat Torsk. And so there's a lot of people that are scrambling to get involved, and um, they actually have uh, they actually have some big uh, big plans ahead. Um, and uh, so far, investors have bought into it. So I guess the question now is. How will cod farming play on the world stage? Salmon certainly had its problems. A big part of its uh, early challenges, kind of when it got on the global scene, was how it was going to interact uh, both environmentally with wild cod, but also on the market. John, what were your thoughts as you've been reading our recent coverage of cod farming and this week's story on uh, potential threats from farm to wild populations in Norway. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to watch this unfold because, like you said, it harkens back to the early days of the farm salmon um, industry. Um, it, it's kind of amazing that they bounce back after 10 years of uh, hiatus, more or less, and they, they're bouncing back with some big promises. I think 100,000 metric tons by 2025 or something along those lines, if I remember correctly. Um, that's a lot of fish. And um, it kind of has the feel of the land-based salmon farm crew right now, you know, where the promises are big, the investments are large, but 
um, the fish coming out the other end right now have been um, few and far between. But that could change, obviously. And uh, we'll see. Now, it, it it's interesting because this development of the cod farming is also running into um, a separate situation in Norway right now where the Atlantic cod has lost its MSC certification because coastal cod stocks are in bad shape. They've been in bad shape for a while, but they mix with the uh, cod stocks that are caught off off the coast as well so um it's it's really caused quite a problem and it led to the loss of the msc stamp so you know i can see some potential conflicts coming uh down the road but um we'll see yeah i mean i i think that it's uh that coastal cod stock in norway is really vexing and really complex and actually uh, next week, I'll be uh, leading a panel on whitefish at the North Atlantic Seafood Forum. Uh, and one of the people that uh, uh, I'll be, I guess, co-hosting with is uh, Morten Jensen uh, of, uh, of Nordic Group. And, uh, and he's certainly been on top of it and really expressed a lot of frustration about not just the, um, you know, not just the, uh, um, the market and uh, impact of it, but just the... the the science and that a lot of people in Norway are a lot of the fishing industry, I should say, are concerned that, that there are some real um, errors in how things are calculated. So maybe as those get adjusted, this wild versus farmed and cod uh, is a little bit less, um, a little bit less of a, of a concern. Um, I just wanted to point out, John, while we're talking about uh, talking about cod farming, um, and I mentioned Norcod and Stocktorsk, both of which are listed on the on the stock exchange uh, in Oslo. Um, Norcod is up 150% since it IPO'd. Um, Stocktorsk IPO'd relatively recently, and that's up about 4%. So, hey, investors are feeling pretty pretty good about it. I guess they're feeling like this is a, a sector that could. Um, could come back, and uh, and we'll we'll just have to see about that. Well, I wondered too about the market. You know, I if I recollect correctly, um, the farm cod that hit the market, you know, back a decade or more ago, wasn't fantastic. Um, it seems like there was texture issues and you know things along those lines, but. I have to admit, I don't clearly remember, but I do. I do remember that it didn't. The market didn't meet it so well. Um, so I, it'll be interesting to see how this fish compares to a wild cod um, and um, how the market receives it once uh, once it starts flowing in, assuming it does. And ultimately, I think it's gonna it's gonna depend on what the prices are for wild cod too. Um, that's one factor that's very different than the salmon farming industry is you have a direct, direct competitor when you have wild and farm cod versus uh, farm salmon, which really doesn't have a direct competitor. Wild salmon is, you know, number one, it's seasonal, but it's also it's a very different fish. So, yeah, that is going to be interesting to follow. Um, now, a um, couple other topics that caught our eye this week. Um, speaking of wild salmon, 
there was a couple of um, of events, uh, has been events over many, many years now, but some that sort of reminded us of, uh, of how climate change is going to be changing um, everyone's lives, but uh, the seafood industry in particular. Um, there was a massive cyclone that we wrote about, uh, Cyclone Yaz, uh, in India that just absolutely devastated, uh, shrimp farms and one of the shrimp farming, uh, shrimp growing regions there in the country and also hit Bangladesh a little bit too. But, uh, the estimated damage is $140 million. Many, many, many of these salmon farm, or sorry, these shrimp farms, are small individually owned um, farmers. You know, these are not big consolidated companies. And so uh, it really has not just a financial impact, but a, um, you know, a, a very, uh, a very uh, big impact just on the, the people and communities. And, and it really is a devastation. But um, Obviously, that uh, we're seeing larger uh, storms and more frequent storms. We're heading into hurricane season now in North America. I think there's expectations there's going to be a, a lot more of those and stronger ones um, again this year. And um, and then you know up in uh, up in Alaska too, there's there's concerns now that the Copper River fishery. Um, it's the second year in the row where it's really been. Um, kind of a bust. And um, we know that there have been um, reductions in the sizes of fish in Alaska. We know the catches have been really erratic. Uh, we know that they've been, um, the runs have been later than they usually have. Um, I don't know, you know, this is just one small slice, but it certainly brings to mind, um, you know, algal blooms, uh, parasites, uh, all these things that they're just starting to, you know, to be a, just a constant in the seafood industry. Yeah, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Uh, all these little pieces are of evidence are floating around, you know, out there, and slowly they're fitting together. And ultimately, you know, they're going to fit together into a climate catastrophe, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the Alaska one caught caught my attention, and I'm really trying to figure it out. But, you know, there was a report on the shrinking size of uh, the salmon that have been returning to Alaska over the years, and, and it's fact that it, it forced uh, Whole Foods to readjust its. Um, it's buying uh, metrics uh, so that, you know, it could it could adjust so they could buy smaller fish because no larger fish were coming through. And and that's pretty significant. I mean, that's a telltale sign something's not right. I mean, maybe there's not enough feed out in the ocean for them. Uh, you know, who, who knows? But, um, yeah, and Copper River, too, you know, maybe maybe things will straighten out here in the next few weeks because it's been really cold up there and that tends to keep the fish out you know uh as far as not returning to uh to the stream so i don't know but it doesn't feel good and i guess the question that seafood people need to start really thinking about i'm sure they are but 
you know, how are you going to adjust your business to this? I mean, we all, if we take salmon, for example, we already know the salmon processors up in Alaska have been losing money steadily for probably, what, 10 years? I mean, it, it's not a lucrative business, uh, to say the least right now. They're struggling, there's too many of them, etc. So how are how are businesses going to adjust to these changes? And, you know, would we hit a tipping point, for example, with Copper River? If we had, you know, three, four more years of, of these, you know, weak runs, have we lost Copper River? Have we hit a tipping point? You know, th- those are the things we're looking out for, but, you know, they kind of sneak up on you and when it comes to climate change. And before you know it, you know, you're, you're, you're behind trying to figure out a way forward. Well, and I, that's, uh, you raise the question is what can be done? And when you're talking about the years and years and years and decades that it took to, um, to see these changes happening, um, it's not going to, there, there's, there's no magic bullet for suddenly mitigating uh, the changes in the ocean and the changes in fish behavior. Um you know, it, it's you. You see reports. Um, the industry, I think, is actually pretty um, clear-eyed about it in some ways, but there's just really not a lot that can be uh, can be done. I don't know if it's just a, a situation where you just kind of make hay while the sun shines and um, see what happens down the road if the fish just sort of change migration patterns or whatever. But we're really looking at um, uh, some some huge, huge issues. It's just hard to even know where to step in. And, and like you said, uh, John, I think it, it happens in small degrees. It's not going to be, you know, necessarily some big catastrophe. It's just the changes have been happening. Um, it's just hard to um, it's hard to pull back and take that longer view when. Um, especially in wild fisheries, it really is season to season. You know, you look ahead, see what's going to happen this season. You see what uh, nature gave you, and you deal with it. Um, aquaculture is a different uh, scenario. I think what we saw in India, uh, it exposes a lot of problems. And one of them is when you have such a fragmented production uh, landscape, um, with so little insurance, many, many of these small farmers don't have insurance. Um, you know, it can really cause some major problems in supply. Um, I'm not advocating that individual farmers be kicked out for larger conglomerates, but, um, but the fact is that there is, um, it is going to be difficult, more and more difficult, I think, for smaller scale farmers to, uh, to deal with these storms, the flooding, um, it's just going to be a huge challenge. And I think that's that um, aquaculture on land is going to um, struggle with things like drought as well. Aquaculture in the ocean um, probably has the best shot of managing how, uh, what all these changes will bring. And I think that that means things like submersible cages, more offshore production, um, closed containment, maybe land-based. I don't know, but, um, but you know, it'll be very interesting 
20 years from now, uh, when uh, we're sitting in an old folks home or whatever, John, um, what this what this industry looks like and what types of changes have happened on the production side. Well, and let's let's keep in mind that this uh, emerging cell culture cell cultured uh, seafood um, industry is promising big things. So, if the ocean raising environment is no good anymore or not good enough to supply what we need, and land-based operations for aquaculture struggle to get the water they need to pump through these places, all of a sudden this cell culture thing may be the solution um, because, well, I shouldn't say that, but as far as I know, you know, they just need a little, uh, some cells, some stem cells of uh, fish and they can make fish on and on and on. So, um I don't know, you know, 20 years from now could look very, very different, very different, which is frightening and a little bit exciting, but to me, a little more frightening. <laughs> well, it's funny you say exciting because uh, Andrew Mallison, who's the principal at, at FishThink uh, and used to be the CEO of, uh, of the Global Aquaculture Alliance, which is renamed now. Global Seafood Alliance. Global Seafood. Al- I I think so. <laughs> Sorry, right. we, we, well, didn't do my to, homework. <laughs> no, well, we need to catch up uh, with them and, and find out some of the changes that have happened there. But um, but of the Global Aquaculture Alliance, he was the CEO, and the uh, and EFO, the Marine Ingredients Organization, is the CEO there as well. So he's got former buyer at Marks and Spencer, formerly with MSC. He's got a, a long, long um, viewpoint. So uh, about the industry. So. Uh, he, uh, he did a little opinion piece for us, which I thought was really interesting. He looked at, um, kind of two factors he thought that were going to play positively. And one of them was an aging demographic, um, which is usually seen as a, as a negative. He, he pointed out that it's, there's so much attention put on selling seafood to younger people and hooking younger consumers, um, with, maybe to the neglect of what older consumers um, are doing who tend to already be um, much more seafood seafood uh, friendly or, or willing to eat seafood. Um, so that was one interesting part. But on climate change, he also said, has uh, a lot of potential as well. Um, and I think that his point was that um, there will be more pressure on ESG issues, on um, carbon emissions, um, things like that, as the world begins to see these effects of climate change. Maybe seafood sees it before other people, um, to be honest. Um, but as the rest of the world really, really uh, catches on that this is going to be a, a major change, um, I think we're going to just only see this acceleration of this move towards um, carbon emission uh, focus. And, you know, he says, and I, I am behind him on this, that a seafood can really, really position itself well in that, uh, in, in that uh, climate, so to speak, um, of, of a desire for a more sustainable food system. So, um, yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, I don't know what you thought, John, about the, uh, you know, about the, the potential for seafood with climate change to be a solution, um, particularly as people begin to back off beef and 
and chicken eventually, although they haven't yet. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it has the credentials, definitely, but you know, you have to get the fish, right? So, if the climate is is foul to the point that you know the salmon aren't running like they were, and the cod aren't doing this, and you can't get tuna, and, uh, it doesn't matter what your credentials are, and that's the whole thing with the MSC that I I kind of. Um, I think about a lot, it, you know, they have a certification standard or a sustainability certification and that's great, but you know, climate change is kind of the trump card and all that, right? If, if there's no fish to certify sustainable, you know, that, that whole thing falls apart. Now that's kind of doomsday down the road. <laughs> Think, I guess I'm just in a dark mood today. I don't know. I feel like I'm. This will be gone by 2048, John. <laughs> well, I read that, so you know, I'm sure it's true. Um, but anyways, yeah, I, I, I think seafood has great credentials from that point of view, but I'm a little worried about the the speed at which we're seeing changes in in uh, seafood stocks in the ocean environment and stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, wild fish concerns me. It really does because I don't know. There have been companies that have been reporting that in their earnings a bit more um, and been you know more open about the potential impacts of this, uh, of these changes, and you're just going to see that more and more. And yeah, well, I mean, that what about me. what ahead. about the al algal blooms? I mean, yeah. how much money has that wiped off the uh, you know the the ledgers of of uh, seafood companies, salmon companies. Yeah. If only there was an intrepid reporting team that could really dig into this. Uh, mm. Mm. Uh, um, so uh, you mentioned the MSC, and uh, I'm going to try to shoehorn in one more topic uh, today because um, I mean, and I hate, hate, hate to bring up Seaspiracy, but there is a point Dear listeners, to me bringing it up, there's two points. One is that uh, if you did not read our story on uh, Marine Stewardship Council uh, staff receiving death threats in the wake of Seaspiracy, you got to read it to believe it, but they, they, they did. Um, and if you go on social media, you can see um, kind of how things spun out of control uh, and how uh, the documentary and its savvy social media um, supporters really kind of built up, I think, a really toxic environment for these issues rather than one based on problem solving. Um, and, you know, it's not Seaspiracy's fault uh, per se that uh, the MSC staff <laughs> are getting death threats. But it just goes back to what we've talked about before, that it was just, it was pretty glib the way that um, the MSC was characterized. So um, anyway, uh, nobody is, any, is in uh, any, any harm or, or anything as far as we know. It was just kind of right there in the wake. But um, yeah, now when John and I were talking about this earlier, we also noted that despite that, um, Seaspiracy is, it's almost out of the headlines. Now, it did its work, uh, and you could say it did its damage. Um, I think it did positive things, too. It raised awareness. But at the same time, uh, I think it's a sad testament and maybe something for 
um, something for all of us to think about that really it's kind of already gone. People aren't really talking about it anymore, certainly not being searched much on our website. Um, you know, in general, the news on Seaspiracy has kind of gone quiet. So I don't know. I mean, John, what does that tell you um, about these types of, of uh, documentaries, exposés, and what does it tell you about when about any message and trying to get good or bad messages out to actually um, help engage? Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about this before, too. Uh, the attention span for uh, people these days as far as... <laughs> You know what they what they absorb through news or, or you know their uh, social media channels is um, short and getting shorter by the minute. It seems like you said there was you know when it seaspiracy hit oh boy it was huge and you know top ten on Netflix and everything, <laughs> um, but that dissipated almost as quickly as it it, it, it formed. So. I think people just, you know, they, they get all riled up for a little bit and then it goes away and they move on to the next TikTok video or whatever those things are. Anyways, um, but yeah, so, but, you know, it's, it, it's weird because it's terrible. They got death threats, you know, it, and you don't know if these were you don't know who these people were or, you know, if they were serious or whatever, but you have to take it serious, of course. And uh, I mean, to get that riled up over uh, an issue is, is kind of, um, kind of scary to be honest with you. Well, I think it just kind of shows the, how far away um, the internet can, can take you from civil discourse. Um, and this, this is coming from a guy who's <laughs> worked on a website for 20 years, but it, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it's true that the, the online climate is, um, it's much more difficult to actually, um, and much easier, I should say, to sort of espouse, um, really negative, uh, comments and, and, um, and really try to, to, to take down your opponents in a way that you probably wouldn't if you were standing there face to face. So it gives yeah. you this, this mask. Um, just a, a note there on Seaspiracy. Um, if you, uh, th there's a site called Google Trends, which is um, kind of an interesting one for folks out there if you want to track particular search terms. Um, it's kind of fun because you can see kind of over time how, how different terms trend. And uh, anyway. It's a, it's a useful way to look at how things rise and fall. And I bring it up because uh, when you look at what happened with Seaspiracy, it's really telling that no one had heard of the term Seaspiracy until about March 23rd. And then it spiked up dramatically, dramatically, dramatically. And now it is almost back down to where it was before. So I think we had our Seaspiracy uh, bump. And it looks like it's gone away. So, I don't know. Just interesting. Well, it, it depends how much the uh, the director and creator enjoyed that that 15 minutes of fame. Because if they really enjoyed it, they may try and um, 
bring it back through a, a different documentary, but maybe one still focused on the ocean and seafood. So maybe they'll take a few notes and just do a little bit extra <laughs> homework. You know, go in there, do your work. You know, and and. God love you. Go in there and expose uh, all the problems in, in seafood, the many, many problems in seafood. But just please do a little work ahead of time. It's going to make a better documentary, and it's going to just do uh, much better service to the world and um, helping them understand the issues. Okay. Maybe don't start with a conclusion and then just <laughs> work backwards to make everything fit that conclusion. That's not the way things should be done, but eh, what usually, do I know? Usually not the right way to go. No. Well, okay, folks, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, just a reminder, because we always have things going on at Interfish, on June 15th, so just about 10 days away, uh, we will have our next digital event. It's on land-based aquaculture, um, which is a topic that um, everybody is interested in nowadays. Um, and we have a fantastic, really interesting panel. Um, in past events on land-based salmon, we've mainly had producers, uh, land-based salmon farmers, which is, of course, really uh, always interesting to talk to them. Um, but we tried to get a little more diverse and get a little bit of a broader view on it um, this time around. So... Um, we have uh, Vigo Halseth. He's a chief innovation officer at Nutreco. We have Lynn Katrin Sletedal. She is with the Oslo Bourse, where many of these land-based salmon farmers have IPO'd. So it's going to be really interesting to hear what she has to say about that process. We have uh, executives with Aqua Group and Aqua Mouth, who uh, are both equipment suppliers. Uh, and then, of course, we do have producers of course we need to have them and we have uh martin rasmussen he's the ceo of Onfjord salmon that's doing a flow through uh technology um uh, in norway and morton nielsen who's the coo of west coast salmon that is going to build a farm in nevada or that's their plan anyway so uh bookmark you can go to intrafishevents.com and you can uh sign up there and then don't forget, we are there on intrafish.com uh, all around the clock from all our different regions of coverage. So you can go to our site and find the latest news there. Sign up for our newsletters. Uh, and you can keep track of us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We're kind of on Instagram, but I don't think we're on TikTok. We're doing our best to keep up. But LinkedIn and Twitter... <laughs> You can find us there and be, be relatively certain we'll do a, a decent job communicating with you. John, I don't know what you have planned for TikTok, but we'll, we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get back to our audience on that. Nothing. All right. Okay, folks, thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.